This is Pablo Escobar, Escape from la Catedral. The tapes you are about to hear have been translated and dramatized by voice actors. You know that politicians live of their image, right? So that we have to do is push hard because that is the only way to solve it. And negotiate it peace. And arrange it peace. So here, brother, we are going to... We have to burn down the houses of the rich, to hit the politicians, the military who runs us over, the policemen who runs us over, the judges who bother us, the journalists. So we have to create a very, very, very big chaos so they can call us to peace. As we heard in the last episode, the uneasy truce between Escobar and the administration of President Cesar Gaviria came to an end when the capo killed two of his top lieutenants inside La Catedral prison. This triggered a series of disastrous events, which led to the kidnapping of two government ministers, a shootout at La Catedral, and Escobar's eventual escape. The fact that Escobar had fled left the Colombian government and the world in a state of shock. How could the most high-profile prisoner in recent memory simply vanish into thin air? To understand what went wrong, we spoke to one of the men who was there, Coronel César de la Cruz. I am currently retired, but I also consult with state and private entities on matters of security. In 1982, I was a captain in an elite unit that specialized in hostage rescue and anti-terrorism. Our mission was to provide governmental support in crisis situations. Uh, when the army, police, or other military forces needed assistance with situations on a national level, we were called in. And the Pablo Escobar case was certainly a national crisis. Some high-ranking members of the Gaviria administration, namely Chief of Staff Miguel Silva, blamed the army for Escobar's escape. Coronel de la Cruz, sees things differently. There were no mistakes. What happened was a result of a series of decisions which had one logical conclusion, and that is the escape of Pablo Escobar. So, no, there were no mistakes. The moment Pablo Escobar negotiated the terms of his own surrender, in a prison of his choosing, with a security system of his choosing, it meant that there was either direct or indirect participation on the part of the Colombian government to allow him to escape custody. How is it that we arrived at 10 p.m. after a flight that only lasted 25 minutes and we couldn't commence operations until 3 a.m.? There were people in the Gaviria government that allowed Escobar to escape. That is a very serious accusation from Coronel de la Cruz that the government itself aided in Escobar's escape. But regardless of whether that is true or not, the fact is that Escobar was gone. When we arrived in Medellin at the Rio Negro, uh, we had to transport ourselves in four brigades vehicles to Envigado. That took more or less an hour. It was about 4.30 in the morning when we met with General Pardo Ariza, the commander of the 4th Brigade. He gave us orders, but the orders didn't make any sense and would have put our unit in danger. So, around 5 or 5.15 a.m., 
I ended up entering La Catedral prison through the main entrance, and I instructed the prison guards who were aiming at me and my team not to shoot. When I reached the inner security ring, I told the guards, please, we don't want any trouble. We're just here for the hostages. We assumed the prison guards were on our side. But just as we moved to break the lock on the main entrance, they started shooting at us. Escobar, of course, controlled the prison's inner security, which had an entire arsenal of its own. When we got inside, we took fire from all sides. When we finally got control of the prison, we took the guards, subdued them and searched them for weapons. We were surprised to find that each one of these guards had three million pesos in one pocket and an additional 2,000 pesos in the other pocket. We are talking about the year 1991. So all of them were absolutely bought and paid for to protect Pablo Escobar. And there were also other criminals and drug traffickers inside the prison. And one of them, along with the prison guard, had a gun pointed at the head of the Vice Minister of Justice, Eduardo Mendoza. So the good news was that the hostages were safe. The bad news was that Escobar was gone. But just when Coronel de la Cruz thought Escobar had vanished, his radio began to buzz. In, medio de esa confusión, In the middle of all the confusion, Escobar contacted me on a prison radio, and I told him that if he surrendered, we would spare his life. He told us he was hiding in a panic room inside a prison. So, we started breaking down walls in areas we thought might be panic rooms. But it was a trick, a ploy that he used to get as far away as possible. When we finally pushed further into the prison, we began to see the luxuries allowed by the Ministry of Justice and the government so that Pablo Escobar and his men could live comfortably. Escobar was gone, but what about the perimeter that the 4th Brigade had set up? Escobar escaped through a back portion of the prison, and he passed right through an army checkpoint without having to hand out a single additional peso to the guards. They simply obeyed orders. And that's how Paul Escobar got out. Escobar's escape was an international scandal. Many Colombians were understandably afraid, but not everyone was upset, namely, that DEA's top agent in Colombia, Joe Toft. The day that he escaped, we celebrated. Now, it is not normal for a cop to celebrate the escape of a, of a criminal, but we were overjoyed because we knew that the hunt was going to be back on. And so we were excited, we were motivated, we were, yeah, we partied. We actually went out there and partied you know, to celebrate the, the escape of Pablo Escobar. How's that? Now that Escobar was at large, the Colombian government, with the help of the DEA and other American agencies, would launch one of the largest manhunts in human history. But before we get to that part of the story, it's worth taking a step back a few years to understand just how elusive Escobar could be. 
To do that, we need to tell the story of a man named Martinez. And send a message to that fraud, to General Martinez. That's the pansy's name, you know? The one who gobbled up a million and a half dollars and thinks he's gonna keep torturing and killing people. What all he thinks? That I'm a dumb fuck? General Hugo Martinez Poveda oversaw the operation to wiretap all of Escobar's communications. Hugo Martinez, he was in charge. He was in charge of managing the 30 officers who ran this whole operation, receiving all this information from all over the country, and he was nominated to what was called at the time the elite corps. This is Andres Montoya, a Colombian journalist and writer who managed to interview the reclusive General Martinez Poveda for several hours. He was unexpectedly summoned to Medellin. He had expected to remain in Bogotá and coordinate operations between the army and the police, but was told that he had a special mission. General Martinez was placed in a room at the Carlos Holguín police station. This was an important detail. They gave him a special room because of all the doubt and misgivings surrounding the police. He didn't know who might be an informant or a member of the cartel. He also asked for a direct line to Octavio Vargas Silva, director of police, and reported to no one else. Then, he asked for a team of communication technicians to set up a small command center in that special room. No one knew what was going on. And that is when he began a counterintelligence operation, tapping the eight telephone lines inside the Carlos Holguín police station to listen to what officers and other employees were saying. The information started to flow. Wiretaps were so common that Escobar's associates invented very rudimentary forms of encryption, like adding four digits to the phone numbers. But little by little, General Martinez began to map out the cartel's architecture. One day, after listening to hours of phone conversations, General Martinez sensed an opportunity. General Martinez managed to tap a line through which Escobar communicated for a couple of weeks. He recognized Escobar's voice over the phone, asking to meet with a well-known volleyball player that he had his eye on. This is a famous story, and it's totally true. She was a player from the Antioquia League. He never mentioned her full name, but did mention her first name and the name of her coach. Then they searched league records and found her telephone number and her exact identity. After that, they tapped her home phone. She lived in a modest home in a poor neighborhood in Medellin, and they began listening to her phone conversations. On the fourth day, a call comes in and someone says, everything is ready for the trip. Martinez says, we have something. This woman is going to take us to Pablo Escobar. A breakthrough. This was an opportunity to pinpoint Escobar's exact location. If they could follow the volleyball player, she would lead them straight to Escobar. They knew the girl was traveling to Doradal, about three and a half hours from Medellin, so they follow her. General Martinez even joins the pursuit. 
They pick her up on Saturday morning and two unmarked cars from the elite corps follow her. The general is in one of them. They were terrified, obviously, because they were about to enter Escobar's main hideout. They had mounted radio scanners on the car and were able to listen to communications. After about an hour, the car pulled onto an unpaved road, but they did not pursue to avoid any potential danger. An hour later, they headed down the unpaved rock, which led them to a boat dock. But the car carrying the volleyball player was gone. A local peasant in the area told them that some people showed up, got on a boat, and left. The general gives the man his direct line and tells him to call him if anything else happens. But then... The next day, the peasant calls General Martinez and says he knows where the boat is. And it's at a nearby farm. The general sends a helicopter to pick him up and they take the man to the Olguin police station in Medellin. They determine he is telling the truth and immediately organize an aerial operation with six helicopters. The general refused to report the operation to any superiors in case they were Escobar informants. The peasant joins the operation in a helicopter with General Martinez. The peasant points out at a house with a red roof just off the river. Then, the general told me he started to hear a noise that sounded like rice being roasted. But that sound wasn't roasting rice. It was gunshots. There was an exchange of fire, and they assumed something big was about to happen. But there was nowhere for the helicopters to land because Escobar had put cables up on very high poles for this very situation. They had to land about a kilometer away, and when they arrived at the house, they were met by a large squad of Escobar's men. Many of them were captured and two died. All this time, General Martinez was listening to Escobar over the radio scanner. Escobar said things like, I'm going this way and that way, and we have arrived at the pine trees. And so they thought they knew where he was. They go back to the helicopters to chase him, and they realize that Escobar was fooling them all along. He was watching them the whole time, and he took off and went in the opposite direction. He didn't escape down the river like they thought. Instead, he went deep into the jungle. The whole time, Escobar made them believe that he was running along the river to escape by boat. If there's one thing that both Escobar's friends and enemies all agree on, is that the man was a strategic genius. Listen, I think it would be very good if we put a group of eight, maybe six or eight guys, to do it. To call them every day and give them our information about you and me. Get them to work, brother, so that when a real call comes in, they don't pay attention. You know what I mean? To make little phone calls. Little calls and letters and stories about how I led them a house, that I was at a party, that I am the godfather, that I the only one who makes the food. A lot of weird stories, bro. Because those people are paying bucks to everyone because I already realized. And not to you, bro, when you call me from home. And keep them busy 
all the time. We have to get a group to work only on that. That's our best strategy. Get them to make up weird stories. That when you were saying about a house, about some musicians, about a party, about a friend, of your sister-in-law, about a neighbor, a bunch of stories. You know what I mean? Right, right. That should make them happy. We should set an office just for that. Set an office just for that. That's how we will send them to the asylum, brother. Operator. It's the summer of 1992, and Pablo Escobar has just escaped from La Catedral, confounding Colombian authorities. The manhunt was on. One of the men charged with tracking down Escobar was Hugo Aguilar. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The search block had 1,500 men and a special intelligence group that was made up of about 50 men. Both those who did the follow-ups, those who did the verifications, who entered to receive the information, to process it, to analyze it, to evaluate it, and then assess whether to operate or not. It was made up of people from the Army, the Air Force, the police, and there were also people from the Navy and the Administrative Department of Security, DAS. That department, as they were intelligence, they had people with us for intelligence. And there was also the DEA base under the command of Javier Peña. But its chief director here in Bogotá was Joel Toft, who was the director of the DEA in Colombia. Here's Joe Toff talking about that team. Uh, one of the things I like to say that even though there was corruption in the police, some of the biggest heroes that I've ever worked with were members of the Colombian National Police. You know, I haven't, I have never encountered people more courageous, uh, more dedicated to the task and putting their lives online in a very, very, very difficult situation which really, to me, was like a, a war zone. Aguilar says Joe Tuff and the Americans would also provide crucial support. There were several aspects. The first being the technological training for the handling of the devices, also handling the use of the phantom plane, the issue of scanning and triangulation. There was another part that they trained the personnel for combat shooting of urban operations. They had people there, and well, they also had their interception systems, and they managed to intercept any communication. Let us remember that at that time, there were no cell phones. The best method of communication was the radio telephone and the pager. All that information was supplied to us, and we processed it to then be able to operate. Another fundamental part of the DEA were the resources, especially in the logistics part to help support the search block, especially the intelligence part and the payment of informants. One of the challenges authorities faced was that they wanted to tap several phone lines to track Escobar. But Escobar had informants working inside the telephone company itself. Yes, Pablo Escobar. One of his strengths 
is that he manages to penetrate all the establishments, the entire governmental structure of Medellin, and many nationwide. And one of the things that he had under his domain was a telephone company, or telecom, at that time. He had an official of those who handle the boards where all the telephone lines are, and he paid him 2 million pesos a month. And that person was the one who intercepted for him. That's why he could hear us. Pablo Escobar knew all the movements of the search block because he managed to intercept the telephone lines that were there in the search block. Likewise, the beepers. He also scanned and triangulated the radio telephones that we use. Then we managed to discover that he had this infiltrated person and he had a salary for him. He had given some recommendations because he was an employee and his salary was minimal. I remember that he did not reach even one million, one million two hundred a month. To put it in context, this was the equivalent to about 200 to 250 US dollars. So he had given him some recommendations that he had to lead a normal life according to his salary. He could not be ostentatious. Everything normal for a public official of a minimum wage. We managed to find him instead of prosecuting him because we said this man is going to be fundamental for us and through the whole day because this did not leave a trace of any kind. He was paid 30 million pesos a month and the same recommendations were also given. One of the guarantees that we had so that Pablo Escobar would not murder our families was that he gave us the telephones of where Pablo Escobar's wife was with his mother and his two children. But also, every time we change phones, that official would take him our lines. Look at these are the coronel's new telephones, the major and the search block. And he also gave us his. So we kept listening to Pablo Escobar's wife. We scanned him too. And he also listened to us. And that is why sometimes he even called me. Or even Coronel Martinez. He threatened us with death. Escobar's reach was so wide he was able to establish direct lines to communication to the highest authorities in Colombia. Were you caught or what? I will comment on you later. I tell you what, brother. You don't owe anything, bro. Put the motherfucker in the helicopter, all right? All right, all right, we talk. Yeah, I'll pick him up later. I have to call the mother and all those mother motherfuckers. I'm on it, bro. And you don't owe anything, brother. I say to you, you don't owe anything, bro. And so it's up to me to kill the mother and children of all those motherfuckers. Yeah, 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 okay. See you later then. Everything's gonna be fine. All right, all right. Move more, move more, and you'll see. Having Pablo Escobar threaten to kill your family can be very unsettling. So Hugo Aguilar decided that the best course of action was to threaten him back. And he would threaten you that he was going to kill you with a whole string of rude words. That I'm going to kill your mother, your father. The exact names of the brothers were known, of the entire family structure. Then at the end, in order for him to hold back from any action, because when that man threatened, he would carry it out. That was sacred. Then you would say to him, if you kill me, My wife, my children, my relative, my father, I will kill your wife, your mother, your children, who are such and such at such an address. The war is between Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria and the national government. 
not against the women, not against the children. Oh, touch my family, and you will see what happens to your family as well. So, it was like the protection came from our wives, our children, and our families. He would have wiped out the families. It was a sort of grim, mutually assured destruction. Nevertheless, the operation was still incredibly dangerous. It was very hard, not only for me, but for all the officers, for all the members of the search block, because Pablo Escobar murdered 99 men from the search block himself, a complete company. There is only one man left alive today who lives in the valley, in Tuluaque. He was left paraplegic, especially at the checkpoint set up by the search block. He would send car bombs, explode them, and kill not only the police from the search block, but also the innocent people who at that time were parked there with their vehicles waiting for their turn in line. And apart from the number of policemen, the story goes, and the media confirms, that there were 650, 700, no, more than 1,500 men murdered. He would pay 2 million pesos for every policeman killed, and 5 million pesos if it was a policeman from the search block. And if it happened to be a higher-ranking officer, the pay was even greater. And they think they won the war. They think I'm inside of a cave, motherfuckers. It was a dangerous operation, one that would haunt the men for the rest of their lives. That was a time of fear. But when one is fulfilling a mission and is involved in a war, then one has to protect oneself, protect the family, and look for the best security mechanisms so as not to be killed. We were glad that he did not assassinate us. But look at the story. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But if you look at the 23 men who carried out the search block operation, only 11 of us are alive. The rest have died in rare circumstances that are difficult to explain. The last one who was murdered two years ago was in Bucaramanga. He was a retired sergeant, retired and had a small business. It is a telephone shop and he always stayed there in his business. Sometimes he sat there in the front and they came from behind. He had no problems at all because he had already settled himself and was living off his pension and his small business. And they arrived there with a pistol with silencers. They shot him twice. The hitmen threw the gun away. They got lost and no one knew anything about it. And so on, others have died in accidents. Those of us who are alive because some have remained anonymous. Others because the police have taken care of us when we have been out and about. Today, I am going through a legal situation because at the end of the day, I am protected. But there is a harsh system that is the suffering of the family. For example, my children can never walk alone. The two youngest have to always go with an escort. They can imagine all the organizations they have over them. They can imagine it. They don't even dream about it. It's better if they throw all the sicarios on them. Those hitmen begin to kill decently. They begin to get on with it, get on with it. <laughs>